And the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who was not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Praise Christ for his glorious gospel. Praise be to thee, O Christ. Please be seated. And while we're at it, let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. How many of you parents have ever told your children that patience is a virtue? No show of hands? It's never happened? Really? Okay, there we go. All right. Parents have been feeding this line to their kids for generations, right? Uh, I think it's a contractual obligation, part of being a dad. Like, as a dad, I, I know, for instance, if I'm driving down a highway and we pass a farm and there are cows in the field, I have to say, hey, look, cows. That's part of what dads do, right? <laughs> I am also obligated to respond when my kids complain about something taking too long, and whether I'm feeling particularly patient or not, I am obligated to say in some form or another that patience is a virtue, right? Now, there are many virtues in life, many that are worthy of being practiced, but I've noticed that patience is the only one we feel like needs constant reminding in that way. Nobody ever says chastity is a virtue. That's not a saying, right? Or temperance is a virtue, even though they are virtues, right? Uh, we say patience is a virtue because that's very easily forgotten in the moment. Most of us feel like we're being sinned against when people make us wait, Right? I am convinced that every traffic jam was done intentionally to make me mad. And we live in a world that has gotten a lot smaller with the technology advances and things, right? Uh, and so I think that our, our patience level has gotten much worse. I, I once had to look up the AOL dial-up sound on YouTube for my kids to hear. <laughs> And I explained how every time we went online as kids, a robot somewhere died and his death throes could be heard throughout the dial-up process and nobody could use the phone while we were connected. And there were only like a dozen websites and they had nothing interesting on them. They took 10 minutes to fully load and there was no Google. And they looked at me like I was telling a story from when General Washington and I were at Valley Forge and <laughs> they asked me, how did you stand it? And honestly, I have no idea. I don't know how we survive. Like, this is my generation's version of going uphill both ways to school. It was torture. I would never want to relive this, you know? It was worse than being Amish. So I get impatient with traffic. I get impatient with technology. I get really impatient dealing with bureaucracy. I don't know how many of you can deal with that. or You know, I, I've been waiting on 
tax return money, for instance, for like eight months now, right? And the only thing worse than waiting for the money would be calling the IRS and waiting for them to actually talk to me. I've heard that, you know, they're hiring 87,000 new IRS agents. I'm hoping some of them answer phones at some point. Like, that would be nice. But um, this week, I got a phone call from the CDC asking for my opinion on vaccines. And uh, I decided to be polite and answer her questions, you know, and, and be playful about it. Maurice can vouch for me. He happened to be over at the time. And, um, but one of the most irritating things was that most of the questions were multiple choice, and she wouldn't let me answer until she had read all of the options every time. So it didn't matter if answer A was correct. She had to read everything first and would talk over me as I was saying A, 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 and she would just keep going. And this just about drove me crazy because the call should have taken about like a quarter of the time that it did. So patience may be a virtue. I'm not a particular fan. I want people to be patient with me, but I really don't like when people try my patience, right? And I like that saying too. Nobody ever refers to people like trying any of the other virtues, trying my kindness, right? The only virtue that you can try is patience, and what you'll find is that it's not typically very resilient when tried. Uh, we like immediate results. We like immediate answers. Instant gratification. Waiting feels like a form of death. There's a great scene in The Princess Bride where Inigo Montoya is waiting for the man in black to finish a death-defying climb up the sheer rock face. And he's waiting there just so he can fight him to the death, right? He's just going to fence with him. And, and he asks him, he leans over and says, you know, I don't think you could speed things up, right? because he loves fencing and he just can't wait for him to get up there. And the man in black is clinging for dear life and he tells him, like, you're just going to have to wait. And he mutters, I hate waiting, he says, you know. And I quote that line a lot at home because I also hate waiting. And I'm wondering how many of you can relate. I'm assuming so. I think this is a culture-wide thing. Uh, we live in an age where almost every question has an immediate answer. Online, Amazon delivers whatever we want in under a week. And even if you miss your flight, you can get from, say, to Vietnam all the way to Allentown in about a day instead of several months. I included that line before I realized Jeb wasn't going to be here yet again this week. But, um, but because of all this, we're not trained to be very patient people. And I've been thinking about patience this week, especially as it relates to waiting on the Lord. We're in Advent, and we've been talking about anticipation, this this thing we're doing where we're waiting for Jesus, right? And we're not just looking forward to celebrating his birth, right? We're looking forward to his triumphant return, right? And we're supposed to be ready to welcome him back. And so we've been discussing what that should look like. How do we welcome Jesus? How can we show hospitality to our Lord? And it's an important question because it's not just an Advent thing, right? This is a daily thing. We're always anticipating his return. And Thankfully, Scripture has some answers about how to do that. We saw two weeks ago that Jesus said, you know, first off, we learned to stay awake, right? And I argued that this is a call to stay awake, not out of fear, but out of excitement. Because as his disciples, we're cheering this return, right? And last week, we said that repentance is an important part of welcoming Jesus, because repentance is basically house cleaning. We're purging the idols to make room for him. But that all leaves an obvious and unanswered question, because we know we're supposed to be constantly ready for Jesus to come back, right? And we also know that it's quite possible, though, that he could leave us hanging. <laughs> 
meaning he might not return during our natural lives. And one question is the elephant in the room. What if I spend my whole life waiting for Jesus and I go to my grave before I see that happen? I think we've all asked this question. The first time I remember consciously kind of wishing for Jesus to come back, I was maybe 12 years old and I I had been in a VBS class where we were talking about, I don't know, some sort of end times theology stuff, and I suddenly realized that I didn't really want to deal with dying one day. And I thought to myself, wouldn't it be nice if Jesus saved me the trouble of having to go through that particular step? That'd be nice. Um, So we know not everybody is looking forward to Jesus' return, but no sooner do we learn to love his coming as we've been saying, then we're faced with this question, like, what happens? What if that coming happens much later than we'd like? And what if we don't live to see it? And what if the Lord tarries beyond the years that he's given to us? What if you live to be 90, and you look around and you feel like, man, society keeps declining, and you're waiting for Jesus to come, and Jesus just tarries? And what if he decides not to come and fix the mess in your natural life? What if he waits another 3,000 years and lets us make a bigger mess. What if we have to wait our entire lives and go to our graves still trusting in promises? That's a lot of waiting. And I hate waiting. And if you feel that way sometimes, this passage should be very relatable. Because apparently John the Baptist struggled with the same thing. Death has a way of clearing the mind and making you ask big questions, and it also has the tendency to shake you, and it can make even solid believers wonder, like, was this worth it? And I've watched people in declining health, and I've heard them ask these kinds of questions, and it it can be hard to make sense of suffering uh, like that, especially when it's happening to us. And so even Christians on their deathbed sometimes start to wonder uh, whether God is really at work or if everything they've lived for is still true and still worth it. And I've seen this. Those are very difficult moments. And that's where John is in this scene. Uh, We know that he has had an illustrious career as basically a street evangelist. I've said that he was an unconventional spokesman, kind of a mess. But he was also extremely successful. He's very well regarded. And that's clear from the gospel records. We, We saw how not just the commoners, but even these Pharisees and Sadducees are lining up to come. And Pharisees and Sadducees don't have a whole lot in common, and yet they all show up for John's baptism. And what that says to me is that he was a big enough, this was a big enough movement that it was trendy. It was actually cool to go see John the Baptist. He was a popular prophet, more pro- probably a lot more popular than many of the Old Testament prophets who were heralds of woe. He was a legit celebrity. And even the historian Josephus records that John had an immense following. He he was the Billy Graham of his day. He was a generational prophet. And his popularity is clearly indicated in the gospel records because even after his arrest, we read that Herod was very reluctant to mistreat John because he was so well-loved that Herod was convinced that if I harm him, that's going to be politically dangerous. That could be my neck. And even the religious leaders, long after John was dead, were still afraid to criticize him when Jesus pressed him with questions about him because the people of Judea had such a reverence for John 
and held him as, a, you know, just the memory of him as a prophet, and they realized that they risked turning the entire citizenry against themselves. So the overall picture we get of John the Baptist is not just that he's popular, but like, I mean, a true model of the faith. He was above reproach, one of the greatest examples of faith, really, that we have in Scripture. He is said to be the last of the Old Testament prophets, but not only that, he's the best. He gave his entire life to serving God, rolling out the red carpet for Jesus, right? And he had this this privilege, we saw, of sort of handing the torch to Jesus. Now, it is interesting to see that John still had his own disciples, even after Jesus began his ministry. Uh, John doesn't hand the reins to Jesus and just go retire in obscurity. He keeps paving the way for Jesus right up to the bitter end. I think there's kind of a lesson in there for us. But here we get a glimpse of John not as the great revivalist uh, or the great prophet or or a wonderful speaker. We see him as a tired man, beaten down and wondering what comes next. I said last week I I characterized him as a wild man, uh, but here we see him tamed and cowled and almost defeated. Now, I wouldn't assume that John was feeling particularly defeated, except for his tone here in this passage. Um, After these years of very fruitful ministry, he finds himself locked up now. Uh, And maybe he originally thought there would be a miraculous escape or something. Uh, We see a few of those in scripture, right? But... And maybe that's what he was hoping for, but it hasn't happened yet. And apparently, he's allowed to have some visitors in his prison cell. I guess he wasn't considered much of a flight risk or a public danger. He's not a murderer. And so he sends a team of his followers to Jesus. And I want you to hear again what this sounds like. He says, well, now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? That's a strange skeptical tone out of John the Baptist. Not sounding very triumphant. Gone is all the tough talk we saw last week when he was rebuking the Pharisees and Sadducees and calling them vipers. Gone is the bold speech and the swagger. Gone is the confidence that once proclaimed that he was not even fit to carry Jesus' sandals. He said that publicly. The tone of his message to Jesus says to me that he knows at this point that he's not long for this world. And maybe God told him that. Maybe he's just reading the political tea leaves. I don't know. But John speaks like a man who expects to die soon. And he's reflecting. He's thinking to himself, you know, since my mother's womb, I've been paving the way for Jesus. It's all I've lived for. It's what I'm about to die for. Was it worth it? What's going to happen now? Because I don't think I'm going to live to see it. So John is a prophet, but he can't see everything. But he he knows that the people of Israel are still lost. He knows that Rome is still in control. He knows that the religious leaders are mostly hypocrites who don't really know the God that they claim to serve. These things he knows. Things look bad. And it's becoming clear to John that things will not be resolved in his lifetime. He will not live to see the deliverance of Israel. And if things are going to get better, it's going to be after he's gone. So John wants to know if it was all worth it, and he sends his disciples to Jesus to ask him. And I said this reminds me of you know people who are suffering on their deathbed, and, I, and this passage did remind me of my dad, my my 
my dad was a, a, a man of great faith. He loved the Lord, and I never knew him to have doubts about his faith until the end. And he got really sick, and I, I, don't, I think he could feel that he was fading. Um, he couldn't really grasp that. Uh, and the gospel hadn't changed. God was still good, but my dad couldn't see that very clearly some days. And I think he came to a sense of peace about things in the last, really, couple of days and, and hours, really, of his life. Um, but the earlier moments of doubt and despair remind me of John in this scene. Because you would think a man like John could never feel a moment's doubt about Jesus. This is the man who leapt for joy in his mother's womb because Mary walked in the room. He's been proclaiming Jesus' coming since Jesus was a mere clump of cells, according to our modern secular thinkers. He's lived a very eccentric life, foregoing most earthly pleasures just so that he could proclaim Jesus and roll out the red carpet, and yet now he has the audacity to ask Jesus such a question. How could he possibly doubt that Jesus was the one? After more than 30 years, how could there be a question now? And it's even more striking, I think, that he does this through messengers. Because it's one thing to pull Jesus aside and ask him privately about all of these matters, right? That's one thing. But by doing this through messengers, it makes your doubts kind of public. Not that he had a choice. I know he's in prison. But, like, you're kind of publicizing the situation that you're feeling kind of iffy about everything. And you run the risk of making your own disciples feel doubtful about your whole purpose and mission. If you tell your messengers, if you tell a group of guys that have come to visit you, hey, listen, I want you guys to go ask Jesus if we've been wasting our time. That doesn't install a lot of confidence. Like if John's having second thoughts, what does that mean for us? And I think you would only do that as John if you're really desperate for answers. John is at a real low point. And I feel like we expect more of him, you know? Expectations make a big difference, you know? Joe was telling us yesterday that since his surgery, he's, he's not allowed to lift more than 10 pounds, which immediately prompted the question, like, how many could you lift before? And he was like, about 12. <laughs> you know. The point of asking such a question is to see how much strength and ability Joe has lost relative to what he had, right? But we've seen John at his peak. We saw it just last week. And so when we see him now here in the valley, it's pretty rough. A lot of the shine is gone. You know, he's lost a lot of the swagger and his faith seems weak. And what's breaking him is the waiting. He's at death's door and he's still waiting. So was it worth it? It was the prophet Tom Petty who said that the waiting is the hardest part. That's your classic rock reference of the week, Ken. He was looking for one. But waiting truly is hard, especially when what you're waiting for never comes. And scripture confirms this. Proverbs 13.12 puts it this way, that hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. John's heart is sick, sick with waiting because his hope has been deferred. He has seen Jesus, but he won't get to see the rest of the story. And patience may be a virtue, but I bet John hates waiting right about now. 
And what assurance does Jesus give John in response to this? Does he explain God's big picture plan? Does he offer to get John out of prison? Does he assure John, don't worry, I'll finish the job? Does he explain what he's going to accomplish on Calvary? No, he's kind of cryptic about things, because this is the way Jesus rolls sometimes. It says, and Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Basically, Jesus says, let them know what I'm already doing. People are being healed. I'm preaching the kingdom. Somehow that doesn't seem super comforting necessarily for where John's at. Because Jesus doesn't directly answer John's question at all. All he does is tell them to report that he's still active and doing his thing. I'm still healing. I'm still cleansing. I'm still preaching. That's a strange thing to report because, as you may have noticed in verse 2, we were already told that John already knows that. It says right in that verse that John sent these messengers after the messenger apparently told him what Jesus had been up to. He heard in prison about the deeds of Jesus. He already knows. And Jesus' response is basically like, yeah, I'm still doing the deeds, let him know. This is like so like a guy. It's like asking a guy how things are going. And what do we always say? It's some variation of, okay, not bad, living the dream, keeping on, keeping on, hanging in there, just doing my thing. Or as Jeff Bridges says at the end of The Big Lebowski, the dude abides. And that's basically Jesus' answer to John. Tell John, the dude abides. I'm still going, no complaints, things are good. Until he adds this little injunction at the end in verse 6. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And this is the closest Jesus gets to telling John to man up. He gives John no fresh details, just tells him not to lose his nerve. The word here for offended is actually the word scandalized. That's the Greek word which is kind of a surprising word to see here, because to be scandalized means literally to trip over something, uh, to find something so unsettling that you can't get past it. How is John scandalized by Jesus, or at risk of being scandalized? Because Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who remember I'm the one. He knows that John already knows that. And I don't think the danger is that John would forget. The danger is that he would become ashamed and offended and scandalized and that he would lose heart, despair in his fear, and forsake his Lord. And if that is a danger for John, I imagine it has to be a danger for us too. What does this have to do with Advent? This is the season of anticipation, but what happens when Jesus doesn't show up in the way we expect it or in the time we expect it? What if he shows up late and the world is still a mess and then we die? What can this story teach us about waiting for and welcoming Jesus? How do we get excited and stay excited? How do we keep cleaning house when we aren't even sure he's coming today or even this week or this year or this century? 
John struggled with this, so how can we wrestle with it well? Well, it comes down to patience, doesn't it? Everyone's favorite virtue. Waiting for Jesus, welcoming Jesus, means being patient. Patience is the key factor. And this is what balances out our attitude towards Jesus' coming, because, as I've been saying, we should want it intensely, and yet we should be fully prepared to wait for it, as long as it takes, and maybe a lifetime, maybe much longer. Welcoming Jesus means welcoming him on his time and not ours. And hospitality towards him means taking the Motel 6 approach to his coming and leaving the light on for him. And don't be embarrassed when he's later than you thought. Don't be scandalized by the fact. And it's so nice, this whole story fits in well with the epistle reading we heard earlier out of James. Speaking of patience being a virtue, James says your mother was right. I'm going to read up to verse 11. It says, be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. James tells us we must be patient, like the prophets, including Job. I don't want to have the patience of Job. I don't know about you, but that's what Jesus wants from us. James says, don't grumble. Be patient like a farmer waiting for his crops. The farmer knows there's a reward on the other end, and you can't rush a miracle or you get lousy miracles, again, to quote the prince's bride. The opposite of patience in this passage is not so much impatience, but scandal, shame. And it's easy to feel ashamed as Christians, I think, especially when we're suffering, because we know that as Christians we're called to live differently. We're not to indulge the way the world does. We say no to things. We say no to people. We say no to ourselves. We deny ourselves what the world gorges itself on. And then when we die, and to the world's way of thinking, we get to that point and it's like some of you never even lived. And that makes us weirdos. Not like camel skin bug eating weirdos, but weird enough that we kind of stand out, right? And the world thinks we're crazy and evil. One or the other, both. And when Jesus doesn't show up in an obvious way, we kind of look stupid and we can be tempted to despair and be ashamed and we feel offended that Jesus doesn't reward our patience now. Ironic. But Jesus says, be patient. Patience is a virtue. Don't be scandalized by me. So the application is obvious. Wait for Jesus and be patient. And don't be scandalized, especially if he comes late. Easier said than done. And I wonder if John was surprised or upset 
that Jesus didn't even offer in the midst of all this to come and visit him. Jesus sends some encouraging words, but this is the last exchange he'll have with his cousin in that life. And Jesus probably knew that. And a short while after this, John was beheaded and he left no family, no great building, no permanent movement. Did he finish well? Details are scanty. And if all we have to go on is his final recorded words in this passage, we'd be tempted to think that John went soft at the end and didn't end very well. And that would not be a very uplifting Advent message. But my favorite part of the passage is what happens after all this. I'll read this again. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. I'm unaware of any higher praise ever given or received by Jesus in the New Testament for a human Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, says no man born of woman can compare with John. John sa- Jesus says that John was the greatest. Apologies to Muhammad Ali. But what I love about this is that Jesus says this after John expresses his doubts. John feels defeated, but Jesus turns around and says John is a hero. He's not some reed shaken by the wind or some soft, pampered, wimpy, rich guy lounging around the palace. John is a real man, a man's man, a prophet and more than a prophet. John is a great guy, the greatest born of women, and I think that covers everybody. In other words, John is not defined by his moments of doubt and weakness. And beloved, neither are we. Jesus doesn't look at his people and see them at their weakest. He doesn't judge us according to our doubts and fears and weakness. That's not our core identity. Now, how can I make such a bold statement? I say that because verse 11, as we finish it, extends the blessing to us too. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet... The one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Beloved, it is no sin and it is no demotion to be small in the kingdom of heaven. It is no sin to be weary and beaten down. To be the least is to be greater. Jesus is turning everything on its head here. Patience is a virtue and it will be rewarded and Jesus will come and fix everything. But in the meantime, we can lean on him when the waiting seems too long and when our patience turns into despair. I wanted to turn to Isaiah 40 real quick too. The same chapter that predicted John's coming in part. It says this at the end of that chapter. 
Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Beloved, we read this story knowing a lot more of the story than John did, right? But even so, sometimes the waiting is the hardest part, and the anticipation tone of Advent can seem to drag on forever. Patience may be a virtue, but it's not easy, and waiting on Jesus can be hard and confusing and can feel awfully lonely at times, and when we suffer, it's tempting to be scandalized and ashamed. And it is just like the enemy to confuse us on this matter. Because on one hand, he would have us fear and dread the Lord's return and have us clinging to this world with you know, all of our might. And then on the other hand, he'll have us resent the delay, like, what's taking so long, Lord? But I reflect on this passage, and I think, you know, Christmas is coming, and for some of us, this doesn't feel as much like a season of celebration, even for those of us who love Christmas. It can be hard at times. Um, there's sad memories, senses of loss. That's kind of normal. But if you find yourself tired and mourning or falling behind or feeling left out, this passage is for you. Because John felt it too. And yet Jesus called him great. The gospel is good news for the weak and the hurting. Jesus came, as the hymn says, to taste our sadness. But also to defeat it. Because he was the one we were waiting for. And the hope of Advent is this, that Jesus does not measure you by your strength. He gives power to the faint, and he lifts up the doubting. So be patient. Wait on the Lord even when you can't understand what he's doing, and even when you wrestle with doubt and fear, wait on him. And when you grow weary in the waiting and you are fainting, rest in this, that Jesus does not condemn the weak or the weary. They who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength, and Jesus will remember them not as cowards, but as even greater than John the Baptist. What a Savior we have. Isn't he worth waiting for? I think so. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ministry and testimony of John the Baptist, and we thank you for your son. We thank you that you sent him to earth, Lord. We thank you that he is coming back again. And we thank you that he does not condemn the weak and the doubting and the struggling. Lord, for those of us who are struggling, who love your coming but are growing impatient, we pray that you would give us patience 
Lord, and comfort us when our patience weakens. Lift us up when we are fainting. Give us joy as we look forward to your coming, Lord. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology.